Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, you heard it sung earlier, a portion of this, and uh, we'll be reading this as our text. Um, Let me preempt your question. Uh, We had a wonderful trip to Haiti. Uh, Thank you for your prayers. Uh, This time last week we were uh, worshiping in Lakai, and uh, I was given the opportunity to preach there, and then uh, it was broadcast uh, on TV all over Haiti, and we're grateful for that. And uh, just a number of opportunities. You're going to be hearing more about them in uh, November, uh, one of our Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll give a fuller report, but, uh, and you'll see some articles, but in the meantime, uh, thank you for praying for us, and we really do believe that uh, Uh, God answered our prayers in uh, wonderful ways, and uh, even the challenges that we have uh, seen that we express to you uh, concerning the government and the orphanage, we see in God's uh, wonderful providence, uh, Him working it for His glory, and so uh, continue to pray, but uh, we're grateful for that. In Colossians 3... We begin with the 12th verse. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for your word. It is truth in a world that would deny that there is such a thing. We know that because it's from you, it is perfect and it is truth. And so it's for us, for our best. And you saw fit to preserve it for us today. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would apply it in our hearts, would convict, would conform us, would mold us. And we look to you for this. Give us humble hearts as we receive your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By what? By how often you go to church? By how much you read your Bible? By how well or loud you sing? By how well you worship? By how much you give? by how big your building is, by how many people are coming. No? None of that. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He boils it down to that if you have love for one another. In our series, The Making of a Disciple, how clear is that? If you are a disciple, you will live out love in your interaction with God's people. One cannot be a disciple without loving the people of God. In fact, in 1 John, it is clear that if you don't love, you don't even know God, much less being a disciple. Now, that's the theme throughout the Scripture. That's not something new Jesus brought in. At creation, we were created to love. At the fall, it was all messed up. And in his story of redemption, he is redeeming that, fixing it, correcting it in the power of what Jesus did on the cross. And when he comes again in eternity, heaven is a place of love. Hell is loveless. But heaven and eternity for God's people is a place of love. Now, here's the problem. All of that can sound very theoretical. And we can say, okay, I'm, I love everybody, <laughs> you know. I love all the people here and all that. But what really does that mean? How is it expressed? And so today, I, I want to look at, there are many ways it's expressed and many ways in the New Testament. But I want to, for our purposes today, get very practical and give you three ways that Jesus made it clear that we show love for one another. And if we are not doing those, we are not showing love for one another. And don't pretend you're a disciple if you are unwilling to love his people. 
The first way, the disciple of Jesus serves God's people. Uh, before dying on the cross, Jesus showed his people what it meant to die to self. At that supper, he removed his outer cloak. He put on the clothing, as it were, the covering of a servant. And he washed the feet of his disciples. Unheard of for the teacher to do that to the learners. But he wanted to show the full expression of his love, which he was going to show on the cross. But in this case, he wanted to leave an example for his people. Because they weren't all going to die on a cross, certainly not for the sins of others. And so how could they show their love for one another? In John 13, verse 12, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, don't think it's limited to washing feet. But understand that it is talking about serving. And serving in some cases in a capacity that is dirty and filthy and smelly and that most people wouldn't seek. Jesus had said earlier that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's the theme of his life. Here is the king and the creator of the universe. If anyone should have been served by others, it would be him. And yet at every point, he took the opportunity and then he left us the example of service. Not ruling over, but serving others. Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer in New York City, wrote a book called Ministries of Mercy, primarily for deacons, but it's about mercy ministries. But he said this, pastors often hear, I work my fingers to the bone in this church, and what thanks do I get? Is that the way it is? Your service was for thanks? Are you in your right mind? He says, servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. So, 
what Keller is saying, I think Jesus would agree, is that if you are doing things in order to be somehow recognized or even thanked, then, then you haven't really begun to serve yet. That Gordon McDonald says, you can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. <laughs> you see what he's saying? You see, we, we can glamorize even servanthood. Oh, I, you know, I just want to serve. That's all. Well, who would announce that, <laughs> you know, if it's really service? You just do it. Like Jesus, who just did it to the shock of all those who saw him. Leonard Bernstein, the orchestra conductor, was once asked, uh, what's the hardest instrument to play? He said, second fiddle. Second violin, second fiddle was his words. He didn't even hesitate. He said you can find lots of first violinists, lots of people that want that. That's the glamorous place. But to play second violin or second trumpet or French horn, second flute, he says now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, he says, there's no harmony. My, my daughter, Abby, is, uh, uh, plays volleyball for her high school. Now, her position is the setter. Here's how it works if you haven't seen volleyball. When, when the ball comes over, uh, someone will receive it. And their job in receiving it is to try to pass it to the setter. Now, no matter where it goes on the court, the setter is supposed to get the second hit. And so they run all over the court to get the ball. And their job as the setter is to set it to the front row who are the hitters. And if everything's working right, they will hit it and there'll be a point. Guess who gets cheered for? <laughs> the hitter. When the hit takes place, that's when the cheer, nice hit. And it's not the passer or the setter. They rarely get, I mean, other than the mom or dad of the passer or the setter, who says, nice pass. Good set, everybody, you know. Nobody really recognizes it. But that's okay. And you know, when it's all working together, it's a great thing to watch. Are you willing to be the passer or the setter? You see, that's really the key. The one maybe that doesn't get the cheers, but who is essential in the kingdom of God. The disciple of Jesus not only serves others, but he deals biblically with conflict. Well, that's hard, isn't it? 
Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So what what he's doing, he's kind of ratcheting it up in terms of how we treat one another. That person wouldn't be defined as a disciple. He goes on to say this, verse 23. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now think about a couple of weeks ago in this series when we talked about Jesus' priority in worship. What a a priority it was for him in, in dealing with the woman at the well that she had these huge issues and sins that she was dealing with and yet the conversation he took to worship because that was such a key even for her in that situation. But here we see that apparently there is something even more crucial, even more pressing than worship. What is it? Well, if there's a conflict, you've got to deal with it first. He says if you're, if you're bringing your gifts, your offering, he says, put, and, and you've you got a problem with somebody, put down the offering. Now here's the implication is, you leave it because you're going to come back and you're going to give it later. So in other words, you're, you're not saying, well, I can't worship, I've got a wrong attitude here. What you're saying is, I've got to worship. I want to worship. But I've got to deal with this first. So you leave it, you go be reconciled, and then you come back and you make your offering and you rejoice in that relationship. How do you go about reconciling? Well, we're not going to go into it thoroughly today, but in Matthew 18, that's a whole sermon there, verse 15 through 18, God gives us the way to do it. In a nutshell, basically, you go to the person. (laughs) Radical, right? You actually go and you talk to the person. And then if that doesn't work, you take someone with you. And, And you hope at each of these stages that the reconciliation takes place, the sin is dealt with. But if it's not after that second step, then you take it to the church. Now, we understand that as going to those who represent the church, and that's the elders. And then you know what we do? We go through that whole process again. And at every point, it's with the hope. For the glory of God and the purity of his church, it's with the hope of restoring someone who is in sin. Now, for some of you, that's a problem. 
you've heard that passage taught. And you might be saying, well, you know, I just wasn't raised that way. <laughs> you know, in my family, we don't really confront things. In fact, I don't like to confront things. Some of you might be thinking that. In fact, I've even heard it said, oh, you know what? We don't deal with things that way here in the South. Here's the funny thing. I heard that in the Midwest, and I heard it in the Northeast, too. But here's the thing. At no point should you let your culture determine whether you're going to listen to Jesus or not or even what your mama told you. You've got to make up your mind. Are you going to listen to the one who died for you? Are you going to, by faith, believe that he will tell you the best way and follow through with it? Because that's the way he said. Now look, most people do not like confrontation. And if you do like it, there may be something wrong with you, okay? Most people just don't like it. But he says, this is the way. And it doesn't have to be ugly. You do it in love. You do it so you can then go worship. That's a good thing. But you go to the person. And having used Matthew 18 in many very sticky situations that I've had to deal with, through the years, I can tell you that it is way better than any other method or plan to deal with conflict. God has given us the best way. The, the third very practical aspect is that the disciple of Jesus forgives as he's been forgiven. Colossians 3, uh, which... We read earlier, and I'll just read you the, the last part. If one has a complaint against another, this is verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We must have a short memory of wrongs done to us. This is your family. It's your family. But, you know, sadly, I've seen this in you know, our natural families. Sometimes people don't treat people in their own family as well as they treat others outside the family. You know, they're more polite to those outside the family. They don't blow up at them and things like that, but in the family they kind of let down. And that happens sometimes in the church. It ought not to. It's your family. Jesus told a story to give people incentive to forgive, and also to hold a mirror up to them of what uh, they're like when they don't forgive. He said this. This is in Matthew 18 as well. 
Peter came to him and said, well, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, and you know the answer. He says, I don't, not seven times, but uh, 70 times seven. In other words, what he was saying is you, you just keep forgiving, you just keep forgiving. And it's not that you just multiply it out and then you say, okay, one more time and that's it, you know. You just keep forgiving until you lose count and you, you, you just continue to forgive. And then this was the story. He said there was a, a, a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. And he began to settle. One was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in terms of amounts, that's basically uncountable. That is like the debt of the United States that one person owes, something like that, okay? In other words, it, it, it can't really be paid back. And when the guy said, I, you know, I, I can't pay it back, he said, okay, I'm going to have you sold and your wife and children, take all that you have, and the man pleaded, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant forgave him his debt. Now, that one who was forgiven the debt, somebody owed him. Not a huge amount. In fact, it was a hundred denarii. It's about a day's worth of wages in that day. In other words, something that could be paid back. He said, I'm sorry, I can't pay you back right now. And that one who'd been forgiven began to choke him. And he said, what do you, what do you mean you can't pay me back? I'm going to put you in prison until you pay the debt. Now, some of the other servants saw what had gone on. They went back and they told the king. And it says, the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? It says, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And if you're in Christ, you've been forgiven more than, you, than anything could ever be done to you. We've offended to that degree. And some of you need to forgive others. You need to do it in your heart. You need to do it before the Lord. Some of you need to go to those people and talk to them before you worship again. My wife and I saw the movie when we were dating. It's been remade since then, and I guess that kind of dates you once a movie has actually been remade. <laughs> but we saw the Poseidon Adventure. Maybe you remember that. Well, it's about the SS Poseidon, and it, as a, a ship, it, it is this big storm. It flips over, and it's floating upside down. Now, what do the people do? Well, a lot of the people do what they think is the, the, the logical thing to do. And they began to climb to what is the top of the boat. 
but the top of the boat actually is 100 feet underwater. And so they, by making their way to where they think they'll be able to get out, they end up drowning. Others do the exact opposite. They make their way to the very belly of the boat because there was air there. And then they banged on the hull until eventually they were rescued. In life, it's as if God has flipped the ship over. The only way for us to find freedom is to choose what doesn't make sense. Go the opposite way. To lay down our lives by serving. By doing that which isn't natural and dealing biblically with conflict and and by being forgivers of others. I heard it put this way recently. The reason there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not what binds together other groups in our world. Other groups are are bound together by their common interests or their location or they rooting for the same team or their job or their education or uh, wealth or status or something like that, but not us. We love, not because of those things, but because we've been saved by Jesus. It's the only thing that binds us together. That's the finished work of the cross. And we owe him allegiance and obedience. And to love those he loved. Let's bow together.